Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Vuk Jukic and this is Anablock Podcast. This show is exploration of enterprise software, technology, ideas, business, science, history, and world affairs. This podcast is for anyone that likes to learn new things about business and technology. This podcast is brought to you by Anablock. Anablock is a system integrator and Salesforce partner. Anablock's technical team helps organizations to implement, customize, and optimize their Salesforce applications. On this episode, we have a special guest. Our guest is Helen Epstein. Helen is a former NYU journalism professor, author, and a guest lecturer. Helen is the author, editor, or translator of 10 books of nonfiction. We talk about her mother's memoir, Francie's War, her trilogy of books, Holocaust survivors, her start in journalism in Czechoslovakia, and many more interesting topics. Uh, Helen, thank you for being on our Unblock podcast. I uh, had opportunity just to sort of share how we like virtually met. I had an opportunity to uh, interview uh, Max and Ruby, and uh, Max is, I believe, you were. Uh, your nephew, and yes. uh, we had a conversation about technology that we are uh, both in. And then I kind of, towards the end of the interview, I was asking him, uh, you know, is there any book you would like to recommend to our uh, listeners? And he met, met, said, well, actually, there is. There's a book that my uh, grandmother published. And then uh, immediately after the interview, I went on Audible because I love uh, listening audiobooks. And I downloaded uh, the book that by the name of Francis War. And that's sort of how I came across uh, you. Um, and uh, I did a little bit more research about you. And we you know, started an email conversation. And now here we are recording a podcast. So again, thank you for being on this podcast. And uh, maybe we can start by just telling us who is Francie and uh, what is Francie's war? Sure. So Francie, it was my mother. She died in 1989 of a brain aneurysm. She was quite young. She was 69 years old when she died. And um, she was a dress designer by profession and she was also a Holocaust survivor. And uh, her story was actually very, very unusual. Um, she was born and raised in Prague when it was Czechoslovakia. She was raised uh, in the first Republic of Czechoslovakia, which was founded in 1918 and she was born in 1920. So she identified very, very much with the new country and the new nation. And she always regarded herself as a Czechoslovak citizen. She was a very proud Czech. She was Jewish. I'm sorry, uh, which year was she born in? She was born in 1920. So that's very easy. Oh, 1920s. Yes. Okay, so that's right after the formation of the exactly. Czechoslovak. Two years, uh, two years after yep. the formation of Czechoslovakia. So okay, because, because she was born so soon after the formation of Czechoslovakia, she always identified very strongly with the new nation. 
as I'm sure many of your listeners um, can understand because they probably come from various countries where also the new country becomes identified with the people who are born in the new country. So Czechoslovakia was one of the countries that was formed out of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and it's smack in the middle of Europe. Have you been to Prague book? I have not personally, no. I have not been to Prague or Czech Republic. Yeah, you have to go. It's very beautiful. So anyway, it's right in the middle of uh, Europe. And that's where she was born. And she lived there um, very happily in the very center of Prague. And her mother, my grandmother, had a fashion salon in the center of Prague. She was also a dress designer and a dressmaker. And so my mother grew up with fashion in the home. And even though she was sent to very good schools, she went to the French school in Prague, she dropped out to become a fashion designer. And in 1938, she was 18 years old and she took over the fashion salon from her mother. Now, unfortunately in 1938, um, you may know and that 1938 is known for the Munich Pact. And when politicians all over the world talk about Munich, they mean the Munich Pact of 1938, which was when Hitler annexed a part of Czechoslovakia called the Sudetenland and basically occupied it, took it. Um, pretty much uh, like what just happened uh, with with Russia and Crimea. And uh, that, because of that, Czechoslovakia was destabilized. And my mother, who was then 18, Francie, um, her whole world was shaken up because until then she had been looking at a very stable country, very peaceful city, uh, very much had mapped out her professional trajectory. She was used to going to Paris twice a year to look at the fashion shows. She was used to going to Berlin twice a year. And all of a sudden with Hitler and the rise of Nazism, all of this fell apart. So the first thing that happened was that um, her business was taken away from her. Um, in in um, 1939, after the Munich Pact, the German army invaded Czechoslovakia and took over Prague. So in March of 1939, shortly after the Germans took over Prague, they took over most of the businesses that were owned by Jews, including my mother's business. So that was the beginning of the war for her in March of 1939. Actually, you know, in America, we learn that World War II started in September of 1939 with the invasion of Poland, but for the Czechs, it started half a year earlier. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. So she was basically um, 18 years old about when- Yeah, um, she was- then Yeah, the she war had started just- for her. Correct, she had just turned 19. Her birthday was in February. The Germans invaded in March. So she just turned 19 years old. The Germans invaded 
and um, her salon, you know, you can imagine you're 19 years old and you yep. own this salon and, you know, she's very proud of it. And suddenly she had to give it up. And so the way they, she gave it up, as she describes in, in her, her book, Francie's War, she, um, she basically pretended to sell it to her, her head seamstress, and, but she continued to work there as though she were an employee. And that went on for a couple of years, even though it was totally illegal. And she was, um, a, a lot of these, I, I, I went through the books, a lot of these details uh, were covered in the book. Um, I, I'm curious, I think uh, she mentions in the book that your, I guess it would be your grandparents, they came originally from Vienna to Prague. Uh, not really. My, both, no. both, of my, both of my parents ha came from Czech Jewish families, but they had been living temporarily in Vienna. My, my, oh, grandmother, my grandmother had only been there for about six months and um, my grandfather had spent much more time there, but they both were living in Prague and they really, really loved Prague. They were, they were definitely Czechoslovak citizens. The families went back in, uh, the family roots went back in the Czech lands to the 17th century, um, so, oh, wow. so far back, very far back. They were really, really from that place. And Jews in general uh, in Central Europe have a history of about a thousand years that's documented. So they weren't traveling people. They were people who had deep roots in the country and deep history in the country. So when the Nazis invaded, um, they felt uh, that the Nazis were foreign and that they were invading their country. They did not feel out as outsiders, as Jews. They felt very Czech. In fact, okay. my, my grandfather and my mother were both baptized Catholics. Um, the reason they were baptized Catholics was that my grandfather had wanted to go to university in Germany and they had um, a quota system for Jews. And so he had himself baptized to get around the quota. He really was not a religious person and he didn't feel any deep affiliation with um, Judaism as a tradition. So, um, so when the Nazis invaded, my mother was shocked to find out that she was not considered a Czech, she was considered a Jew. So if you can imagine that in America today, I mean, we have so many different immigrant groups in America, it, it's as though uh, a foreign power would invade the United States and decide that everybody whose parents came from a different country were no longer American. That's the way she felt at age 19 after the Nazis invaded Czechoslovakia. And she describes very, this very well in Francie's War. Yes, she does. And, and actually it's very interesting what it, when I was um, going through that part of the book, what it reminded me of is my history to a certain extent uh, is from that sort of, you can call it part of Europe uh, yes. where 
region, I should yeah. say, of Europe. And we, uh, I was a kid at the time, but we also had a, a more recent war, which was basically the Bosnian war. And there was like a series of them. But it's very similar because we, at the time, just maybe a year before the war, thought of ourselves as, as Yugoslavs. And nobody was looking at deeper into any ethnical or ethnic ethnicity or background, religious background or anything like that. But suddenly, as just at the dawn of the war, suddenly I learned, for example, that I'm really Serbian, you know, from Bosnia. But at the same time, I was considering myself a Yugoslav. So it sounds to me she sort of had the very similar experience that she probably had no idea she was Jewish until Nazis came and suddenly they started labeling people. Exactly. So uh, it is similar. And what's, what made it even more difficult for her was that um, the Nazis almost immediately instituted a set of anti-Jewish laws, which were really, really discriminatory, discriminatory. Jews could no longer own businesses. Jews could no longer own radios. This, these restrictions um, became more severe over, over a period of a year and a half. Uh, they had to shop only at certain times of the day. Um, they could not live, live in certain places. They could no longer go to the park. They could no longer swim in the river. They could no longer go to the theater. They could no longer go to the movies. They could no longer own cars. They could, at one point, they could no longer own bicycles even. At one point, they could no longer own pets. Imagine that there was a law wow saying you couldn't own a bird or a cat or a dog. So um, this went on for a couple of years. And then the Nazis started deporting Jews from uh, what, what was Czechoslovakia to other places. And they either deported them to concentration camps or to ghettos or to killing sites where they just shot them dead. And um, one of the places that they decided to deport them to was a town about 50 miles away from uh, Prague, which had been a military garrison. And that place you may have heard of was called Terezin. In Czech, it's called yes. Terezin. And in German, it's called Theresienstadt. And that's a very interesting place for my family because my father um, was an officer in the Czechoslovak army and his military garrison was Terezin. Terezin was about 15 minutes. And, and he Prague. also fought in, in World War I, correct? He fought, no, he didn't fight in World War I because he was too young. He, he was born in 1904. My grandfather, oh, I see. my paternal grandfather fought Got in it. World War I on the side okay. of Austria-Hungary. But my father was born in 1904. So when he was 18, World War I was over, but um, he still had to do military duty. And so his military garrison was Terezin, which is 15 minutes away from the town that he was born. So um, he already knew the place pretty well. He had been a quartermaster in the army, which means that he was the person, he was one of the people trained to order provisions and then distribute the provisions to the various cooks in the, in the garrison. 
And so okay. when he was sent there as a Jewish prisoner at the end of 1941, he resumed that role. He was a quartermaster in the what became the ghetto concentration camp of Theresienstadt. And Theresienstadt served largely as a transit point for lots of um, deported Jews. Jews would be deported to Terezin, they would stay there for a while, and then they would be transported elsewhere. So in the case of um, both sets of my grandparents, my mother's um, parents and my mother were deported to Terezin, and my mother was allowed to remain there, but my grandparents were transported out of, out of Czechoslovakia east and were shot by the Nazis into an open ditch. And that's how they were murdered. And my father's parents were transported from Terezin to Auschwitz, and that's where they were murdered. And my parents, luckily, uh, who were not married at the time, um, managed to live in Terezin. Um, both of them had, had professions that were necessary. So my father, as I said, was the quartermaster in charge of provisions. And there were eight quartermasters in Terezin. And my mother, although she stopped being a dress designer, she was still a dress maker. And she worked um, in the clothing workshops. And a lot of the time she was repairing German soldiers' uniforms. And then in addition, she could make extra she could she could get favors from people. She could get food, or she could get better better whatever if she made people things out of fabric. So she would make coats or or skirts or shawls or something. And so the sewing really helped her survive. So they were both in Terezin, as she described in France's war, for. Um, about two years. And then my mother was deported to Auschwitz. And in Auschwitz, um, again, she was sewing. Um, in July of 19- And just for the, for the listeners that are not maybe as familiar uh, with Auschwitz, Auschwitz was a German or a Nazi concentration camp in Poland. It was I believe Poland, it was in... and it was it was an extermination camp. They actually okay. put people in gas chambers there and then they cremated them. And this was the typical thing that happened. This is what happened to my grandparents, my my father's and, parents. As soon as and they do you know how many uh, do you know how many people were exterminated over the I'm not sure how many years was the camp in in existence. I think I think I, yeah, I think you you would have to look that up exactly because those figures um, are are a bit controversial, and I wouldn't okay. like to make a mistake if I say it now. But um, I would say look it up. It's 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 very it's very interesting. Of course, there were there were many different kinds of people who were imprisoned in Auschwitz. There were um, political prisoners. There were gay people, men and women. There were, there were criminals. 
there were the Roma, there were what used to be called gypsies. Um, there were all, there were, there were many different groups of people who, who were sent there, but um, you would have to look up exactly what the populations were of each. A good site to look at is the United States Holocaust Museum website, which has really very accurate um, figures on all of this. Um, so my mother was there for not too long, thank goodness. Um, she was there uh, at the time when uh, the Nazis decided that they were going to use some of these people who, who they, they, they were planning to kill, they decided that they needed slave labor. And so they selected a certain number of men and women to leave Auschwitz, to leave this extermination camp alive and to be sent to work camps in Poland and in Germany. Well, it was all greater Germany at that point. So my mother was very fortunate in that she was called up in the first group of Czech Jewish women in Auschwitz to be sent out of Auschwitz to a work camp. And it was at that point that she made one of the most innovative decisions of her life. And she describes this very, very well in her memoir. Um, she says that uh, everybody had to strip naked and line up in front of the infamous Dr. Mengele, who was, would decide if uh, this, this woman would either be sent to a work camp or would be gassed to death in Auschwitz. And she looked around and she noticed that Mengele was sending every woman who wore glasses or who had a scar or who looked old to one side. And she, and she knew from what he was doing that he clearly had a prejudice against people with scars. And she herself had a scar on the right side of her body from an appendectomy. So she decided that she had to do something really dramatic to distract him. And she also realized that all of the women around her, uh, whether or not they had ever worked in their lives were all claiming to be dressmakers because of course, sewing was a skill, a valuable skill during the war. And she decided that um, between the scar and the fact that everybody was claiming to be a dressmaker, she didn't stand a good chance. So she used her brain and she also used the fact that her father had been an electrical engineer in Prague before the war. And when, she, when Mengele asked her what, her what she did, whether she worked, she said, yes, she was an electrician. Now, of course, that was a blatant lie and I don't believe there was a single woman electrician in Prague in the 1930s. However, she got away with it and he sent her on the transport to the work camp. My mother and her group of friends was sent to Hamburg, Germany. Now, and can you just um, uh, share with us a little bit uh, for some of the listeners that might not know who is Dr. Mengele? Okay, Dr. Mengele 
was a high-ranking Nazi officer who was sent to Auschwitz as an administrator. And he was infamous, he was very, very cruel because he was a doctor and he conducted experiments on the people who were imprisoned in Auschwitz. He was particularly interested in twins. And so he conducted all kinds of experiments that would never ever have been allowed under a normal government. At and he killed a lot of people and he sent a lot of people to death. So that's why he was infamous. Um, that's, that's very interesting because I actually, uh, going through your, your mother's book, learned about the part. I, I've read a lot about him in the past in different books, but he was always more real or I guess associated with doing these experiments on, on children and twins. Right. But I right. did not know that he was also choosing at, at that point, I don't know, maybe he was doing it for, for a longer period of time, but that he was actually selecting people that will be sent directly to a gas chamber and the ones that will be sent like your mother did to, to work camps right. uh, to Hamburg. Right. And I actually sp spent some time in Hamburg. Uh, my, I lived in a city nearby in Bremen. And I've been in Hamburg several times, but I had no idea also until I have read uh, your mother's book that there was a, a fairly large, I, I would assume, uh, uh, work camp. Right. Uh, Actually, it was a complex of work camps. There were 80, eight, zero oh, wow. work camps in, in and around Hamburg during the war. And it makes a lot of sense because there were a lot of oil refineries around Hamburg. And Hamburg was one of the German cities that was repeatedly bombed by the Allies, like Dresden and like Berlin. And the reason that it was bombed all the time was because it was an industrial city and because it was a port. You know, there were there were ships there and it was an important it was an important city to the Germans. So um, my mother arrived there and uh, she was put to work at first in these oil refineries, after they were bombed, after a bombing raid, they would send out brigades of prisoners to pick up and clean up after the bombings. And there were all kinds of people there. There were Russian prisoners of war. There were French prisoners of war. There were Italian prisoners of war. And there were these Czech Jewish women who had come from Auschwitz. And um, at that point, somebody discovered a card, an actual registration card, because the Nazis kept very good records, that my mother was an electrician. And so she was employed by, in one of the smaller work camps, by the commander of the camp as an electrician. And um, I guess this is interesting for um, software people that in a situation like this, what do you do? You know, you really use your imagination, you innovate. And if, because she had been a dressmaker and she was used to threading things and she was used to wires of different kinds and different colors, she basically managed to improvise 
and managed to work as an electrician for about five months during the war. And I think this decision to lie pretty much saved her life because if you've lived in Hamburg, you know how cold it is there. Yep. And she was able to work inside. Very interesting. And she is, so she worked through the end of the war in, in that camp. And um, she has a well, lot of interesting in stories. Yeah, well, she was in that camp, but then the bombing grew worse. Um, she was very lucky to be with, with one, of her, one of her cousins the entire time in Theresien, in Auschwitz, in Hamburg. And the two of them really stuck together and shared everything and helped each other. And then at the end of the war, um, we're talking now about um, March of 1945, you know, about this time of year, um, they moved, the Nazis were retreating all over the place. The Russians were moving in on the Germans from the East and the Americans were moving up from the South and also from the West, from, from France after D-Day. And so the Germans uh, were trying to disguise everything that they had been doing with the extermination camps during the war and they moved the prisoners to Bergen-Belsen, which was the last camp that my mother was in. And that's actually the camp where Anne Frank died, Anne Frank of the Diary of Anne Frank. And there at Bergen-Belsen, my mother was liberated by the British army. And this is uh, in Germany too, this camp? Yes, yes, yes. So she, uh, yeah, that's a very interesting part of the book. I. Uh, she has a lot of stories to 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 tell when she was in Hamburg, and then also uh, when they first saw the the British officers approaching uh, the Bergen Belsen uh, camp. Uh, it's a very very um, detailed description. It was like very sort of um, um, to a certain extent, like you know tragic but then at the same time liberating to read that part of of her experience and i think uh, what happened afterwards she got fairly sick uh, so she spent some time um uh, in in hospital in germany correct she had typhus and she was completely out of it for a month and, and what what is typhus it's typhoid fever it's a okay. very it's a very powerful disease that that most people at the time died of, and um, she she managed to get through it, but it took her a very very long time to recover from it. So she remained under the care of the British for several months. And that's a very interesting part too, because that's. It's amazing that she was, I think, was it since 1939 in uh, Terezin or 1940? And then basically through almost first half of 1945, she was either in different camps or in general living under, under the Nazi rule. Correct. Um, went through these, just I can only imagine these horrific 
human strategies and stories of, of genocide and extermination and then traveling in these cattle cars across Germany and Poland and um, Czech Republic. And then suddenly they are liberated. So um, I, I, I can't even picture that in my head. How would I feel? Uh, right. Can you share a little bit like what did she go through psychologically? How did like that's just the sudden transition out of nowhere. You're going well, through this she wrote, like, miserable. She, she, yeah. She what she writes is that it was very difficult to think about going home. They were living in this small German town that had been totally taken over by the British army. The British army had liberated them. So they knew exactly what they had gone through. The British army officers had seen Bergen-Belsen and they had seen newsreels about Nazism for the whole war. So they were very respectful of the Jewish women who were under their care in the hospital. And my mother, my mother was able to recuperate very slowly and, and at her own speed. But the problem was that news traveled and the Red Cross um, soon found out that my mother's parents had been murdered, that my mother's husband, she was married, had been murdered, that many of her friends had been murdered. And she really wasn't very anxious to get back to Prague because if she went back to Prague, she'd have to face all of this stuff. And she'd also have to face the fact that she had no place to live and also that her salon had been completely destroyed. So she had no family, no place to live, no place to work. So she wasn't really anxious to get back. But what happened at, at, um, at, with the British army was the, the people who had liberated the camps, um, their time came to go back to England and a new crop of soldiers came to be the occupation. And um, all of the officers told my mother and her cousin that it was time for them to go back to Prague, that the new people who were coming to administer the hospital and this town would not understand the difference between Jewish prisoners and German citizens. So my mother and her cousin very reluctantly decided to go back to Prague. And going back to Prague was really, really depressing because everybody was dead, everything was broken. And of course, they didn't have a single piece of paper to prove who they were. Wow. I'm wondering on um, how, so, so Prague is, I, I have not been to Prague, but I have uh, spent a little bit of time in, in Vienna and been to Budapest. So these were sort of the metropole or the major cities of the Austro-Hungarian empire, which were all metropolitan areas, had different ethnic groups, different religions. I believe Prague was the same way. Um, I'm wondering the, this six years of German occupation or Nazi occupation, how much has it, if any, changed the dynamic between different religions and, and different ethnic groups? Uh, basically, was there any type of uh, animosity towards the either the survivors or in general towards Jewish people that returned back to Prague 
you know, the local population, did they accept them or have they been sort of brainwashed by German propaganda during the war? Right. Well, it, in Prague, it was a very, very complicated situation. Um, it was it was a little bit different than your situation in between um, Serbs and, and Croatians because in Prague there were there were German Czechs and there were Czech Czechs and the Jews were belonged to both groups and oh wow but it was it was like it was a bit like Montreal you know uh, it was a bit like Montreal in that. There were English speaking Canadians in Montreal and there were French speaking Canadians in Montreal. And when the Quebecois movement became very strong, a lot of the English speaking Canadians moved out of Montreal and went to Toronto. So in Prague, what happened, very complicated, was when it back in 1938, when, when Hitler seized um, parts of Czechoslovakia, Germans flocked into uh, what is now the Czech Republic. After, after the war, when Hitler lost, the Czechs became really, really, really angry at all of the Germans. And basically um, between 1945 and 1950, expelled 3 million German speaking people from the Czech lands. Now, some of those people happened to be Jews, but there weren't wow. very many Jews who returned from the camps. Um, my mother and father were part of maybe a tiny little group, maybe, maybe 8,000, 9,000 um, Jews returned to Prague after the war. And very soon after that, many of them emigrated because either of the, the difficulty reestablishing their lives there, just because it was with everybody dead, it was so hard for them to return to that kind of life. That was the case for my parents. Um, my parents met in 1946. As I said, my mother was a great big Czech patriot. She completely identified with Czechoslovakia. She wasn't going to go anywhere. And my father was quite patriotic also. My father was a water polo player. And he had represented Czechoslovakia in two Olympic games. And one of them was at the Berlin Olympics of 1936. So that tells you how great, how how great a patriot he was. He identified yeah. so much with Czechoslovakia that he basically defied the Nazis and went to the played in the Berlin Olympics, which is kind of amazing. But at any rate, so in in 1947, when I was born, they were living in Prague. They had reestablished their lives. My mother was running a salon again, fashion salon. My father had been elected to the Czechoslovak National Olympic Committee and he was coaching water polo. And it looked like we were gonna stay there. You know, I, I, was, I was born, I had a nursery in, in my parents' apartment. 
we lived right in the center of Prague again. And um, in, in February of 1948, the communists put, staged a coup, a communist coup in Prague. And this family story goes that my father was looking out the window and he was watching all of the crowds massing um, and he said, I'm not making this mistake again. The communists are Nazis in different color uniforms, and I'm getting out in a bathing suit if necessary. Those are his famous mm. words. I'm getting out in a bathing suit if necessary, and the communists are Nazis in a different color uniform. And so um, my parents and I emigrated to the United States in the summer of 1948. I was a baby. I don't remember it, but um, I do remember the family stories. You know, there was a um, sizable Czech community in New York City. Um, it was very interesting because it was not only Jews. It was it was Czech non-Jews, Czech Christians, Czech Jews, German Jews, Hungarian Jews. And of course, Austrian Viennese people, and they had their own cafes and they had their own bakeries, and um, they had a very active social life. So as a child, I would sit in our living room and I'd hear all of them talk about the war, endlessly talk about the war. I'm sure your parents endlessly talked about the war with their friends too, right? Exactly. So when and, you're a kid, you know, you sit there and you eat the pastries and you watch them smoke and you watch them drink their coffee and you listen to these incredible stories of escape and who did what to whom. And if this leader had done this in 1938, then that wouldn't have happened in 1939. So, th you know, this is the way I grew up. And um, I, these stories seemed more real to me than anything I read in books. Much more exciting, much more dramatic. And yeah, and that's a great segue into actually, so I believe you wrote the epilogue for your mother's book. Mm -hmm. And then um, you, uh, I believe, um, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, uh, you well, you wrote the book Children of the Holocaust, which is sort of partially based on on some of the stories you heard, and I'm sure there's a lot more there that I actually have not finished yet, but I'm going through. So I, I probably went through the first third of the book. Um, and did this book uh, come after or before Francis War? Children, meaning like did Children of the Holocaust come before or after your mother's book? Right. Um, my mother um, started writing her book, I think, in the early 1970s, but she didn't really tell us that she was writing it, and we didn't really know about it. I have two younger brothers, and none of us can remember that she ever told us she was writing a book. She, she wasn't a writer. She was a dressmaker, um, but she did have a typewriter. And both my parents carried on a very, very um, uh, frequent foreign correspondence with friends all over the world. That's probably true of your parents too, right? 
Exactly. <laughs> right. So, you know, all these people who are in exile, are before the computer, before the internet, they were always writing letters to each other. And I still remember yes. the blue aerograms that they used to send. They had these very thin one-page aerograms that you fold up, and they were cheaper to send than stamped envelopes. And so, you know, we were used to our parents typing all the time, you know, so it wasn't unusual to hear somebody typing. So it never occurred to any of us that our mother was writing a book. And um, I, I found out about the book in 1974 um, when my mother told me that she had tried to get it published and she couldn't get it published and nobody wanted it. And by that time, I had become a professional writer. I had gone to, I had actually at the age of 20, quite by accident, been caught in the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. I was there visiting for the first time and I happened to, to get there. And I'm sorry, what years was this? That was 1968. I was, I was 1968. I was a, okay. Yeah, I was a university student and, um, you know, it was summer vacation and I decided to go to Czechoslovakia and see where I was born. I decided to go to Prague. And I got there on August 16th of 1968. And the Soviet army got there on August 21st of 1968. Wow. So there I was in the middle of an invasion at the age of 20. And all the international phone lines were cut. You know, there was no internet yet. Um, there was no way of communicating with anybody. And I was staying with friends of my dad's. And they basically said, stay in the house, don't go out. So I stayed in the house and there was a typewriter there and I started writing. I started writing what I was hearing on the radio and what was going on outside and all of this stuff. And two days later, I was evacuated by train to Paris. And when I got to Paris, I took what I had written. Um, there was something called carbon paper in those days. If you wanted to make a copy of something, you put this piece of carbon paper between two sheets of white paper and you could make a copy. So I had two copies of this thing I had written and I sent one copy of it in an envelope to the editor, New York Times, New York City, New York. And then I sent another envelope to the editor, Jerusalem Post, Jerusalem, Israel, because I had been studying in Israel. And okay. the editor in Jerusalem published the article and that started me out as a journalist. That was my first published newspaper article. So by 1974, I was a graduate of the Columbia School of Journalism and I was freelancing. So I was already writing and I was already thinking about writing a book about the transmission of trauma from one generation to another particularly in populations that have survived genocide. And when I was at Columbia studying journalism, one of the writers we studied was Michael Arlen, who wrote about the Armenian genocide and being a um, son of a survivor of the Armenian genocide. So this was, this kind of stuck in my mind and I knew so many other people like myself um, who were Jewish children 
of Holocaust survivors that I thought this would be worth the book. And so I had started writing Children of the Holocaust by the time my mother's book was, was um, being rejected by publishers. And so after, it, after my mother's book had been rejected many times, she just kind of gave up and she gave me the manuscript. And she said, look, you know, you're the writer in the family, you use it however you wanna use it. So at that point, we gave up trying to publish her book and I really focused on my own writing. So Children of the Holocaust uh, started as an article for the New York Times. By that time, I was writing regularly for the Sunday New York Times. And I sometimes did magazine articles. And in 1977, um, my article about descendants of Holocaust survivors was published on the cover of the New York Times magazine. So that was a really big deal. Um, wow, that's amazing. It was really more amazing then than now, because again, remember, there was no internet. So everybody yep. read the newspaper on Sunday. So something like 2 million people read that article, and then they cut it out and sent it to all kinds of other people. And then the Times syndicated it all over the world. So it was wow. really, really very well distributed. It made a very big splash. And I was asked immediately um, if I wanted to write a book and something like two months later, I had a book contract, which was kind of amazing because I didn't really do anything except write that article. And then the other thing that happened was I got about 500 personal long letters from other children of Holocaust survivors. So it, so my research basically came to me. These letters were unbelievable. Some of them were 10 pages long. Some of them were typed single spaced. And they, they gave me the themes that I wanted to look at. They gave me concrete facts, figures, dates, names. And so um, I really had the research for a book arriving in my mailbox every day, which was kind of amazing. I was 29 at that point, I think. So um, that was a very, very big deal for me. And the, that is amazing. Yeah. And I, I, you know, had a chance to, uh, you kind of discussed in the beginning of, of your book, Children of the Holocaust, um, I, I didn't know you got those 500 letters because you did mention that you uh, interview or researched, I believe, uh, maybe 500 different families. I, I can't remember the details, but is that how it happened? You received those letters and then you contacted some of the writers Correct. of the letters Correct. to get more Correct. details about their, their experiences and so on. That's right. That's part of the story. The other part of the story is that... Um, when the New York Times assigned me to write that original article, um, they wanted somebody kind of glamorous to, to build the article around. So I found this woman who's unfortunately now dead, but she, she was younger than I was actually. And she, had, she, she was glamorous because she had been a Miss America contestant. 
she had been Miss North Carolina. And um, her, I don't know how familiar you are with the Miss America pageant, but uh, are you, have you ever seen it? Do you know what it is? Uh, I, I uh, have heard a lot about it. I can't say that I have watched it in the past, but I'm yeah, sure it's okay. a big deal. for. So pretty yeah. much every state has a, a queen of their state <laughs> and, this, and this beauty queen has to be not only beautiful, but she has to have a talent. And so, you know, some of these people in the, in the Miss America contest dance or they do acrobatics or they play the piano or they sing or they recite poetry. And Connie, who was Miss North Carolina was a pianist and in Atlantic City on TV, you know, in front of millions of people, she said she was playing a certain piano piece by Chopin in honor of her mother who had been in concentration camp during the second world war and Polish radio had played this piece back then and she was going to play it now because she was the same age her mother was then. So this was like the lead story in this magazine piece that I did and Connie, Miss North Carolina, had married a Canadian and she was living in Toronto. So I went to Toronto on, on the New York Times. This huge group of children of survivors in Toronto. So they became part of my research also. So by the time I was writing the book, um, I had a very, very large pool of people to select from. And I decided to um, select very carefully um, 12 major people and really pay attention to diversity by um, geography, where they live now, where their parents were from, by degree of religiosity, were they Orthodox Jews, were they secular Jews, were they really not Jews at all? Because there were some people who after the war, when the parents emigrated to a new country, whether it was in North America or South America or Australia, they, they just left their Jewish history behind them, took new names and never told their children that they were Jews and never told their children anything about their history. So there were those kinds of people. Then I wanted a good mix of men and women. I wanted a good mix of political attitudes, you know, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, yep. all of that. And um, I also wanted, even back then, I was aware that I wanted um, uh, same sex people and heterosexuals. And it's, I'm really sorry that I, that I was unable for budgetary reasons back then to interview these two people who I knew very well. Um, one was a gay filmmaker from Belgium and the other one was a French um, therapist. And at the time, you know, because there was no internet because everything was so difficult in terms of communication, I was unable to include them in the book. But 
um, I wanted real heterogeneity in the book. And um, I think for the most part, I, I was successful. Um, that book has been reissued many times, Children of the Holocaust, and it's used not only by um, Jewish people, but one of the first places I was invited to speak about it was the Armenian Archdiocese of New York, because of course oh, the, interesting. Armen the Armenian genocide has tremendous numbers of descendants. Where I live in Boston, there's a very large Armenian community. And um, so that was, that was the first other group that I was, that I was um, asked to speak for. And then um, over the years, unfortunately, there have been so many genocides. You know, there's been, the book has been used by Rwandans. It has been used by Cambodians. Um, oh, wow. I did it's, not know that. So it, it's very, it, it's the, the idea that um, massive psychic trauma of one generation affects the offspring is now a very normal idea. It wasn't a normal idea when I wrote this book back in 1979. So that book is now, how old is that from 1979? Um, yeah, so that's uh, about, was that 42 years or 41? 42 yeah, now so, almost. Yeah, so that book is, is, is old, but it still keeps getting reissued. And there's a new edition of it on Amazon. So um, if you want to take a look at it, it's Children of the Holocaust. And it really talks about intergenerational um, transmission of history and of trauma. Yeah, that's very interesting. So the book is uh, issued in several languages, but one thing that stood out to me at, in the beginning, I never actually heard this term before, but the, what you just mentioned, basically transmission of intergenerational trauma. Uh, yeah. It's very logical now, but I never heard that concept before. Um, right. And, but, but that's something new about human history that exists, obviously, for Jewish people, uh, but at the same time, for, as you mentioned, others that kind of went through the similar genocide or, or these uh, horrific experiences in wars, etc. Absolutely. And also children of prisoners, children of prisoners of war. Um, I heard from lots of people after the book came out who, who were not Jewish. I heard, actually, I heard from kids of Nazis, children of Nazis, who felt that they had been deeply affected by their parents' um, experiences during the war. And I heard a lot from um, children of other populations in Europe. I, I, you're actually the first Yugoslav I, I think I've ever talked to, but I talked to people <laughs> who, whose, whose parents were from Estonia and from Latvia and from Poland. Whose, whose parents had either been forced to flee or had been in work camps, in Nazi work camps, and they felt that they had been affected as well. So, um, yeah, and I really, I really very much uh, like to talk to people who come from these different historical groups and um, see what the similarities are in the intergenerational stuff. I mean, I would imagine that every place where there has been a civil war, including India, of course, India and Pakistan, um, that 
these stories and, and these cultural traditions and psychological effects um, are, are very present. So do, um, well, based on your research that you were doing and talking to different uh, children of survivors, survivors also different ethnic and religious groups, what are some of the more common themes that fall mm -hmm. under the, the trauma, transmission of trauma? Mm -hmm. Have you noticed anything that's similar or almost the same across every different group? Yeah, I think that um, the, the survival skills that the older generation developed get transmitted to the younger generation. For example, um, in the case of Jews under Nazi occupation, there were, let's say, three major um, situations that one could be in. One was to be in a concentration camp or a work camp where you were a prisoner and where you had to be very, very, um, to really put all of your energy to survival in, and, to, and, to, and to be uh, in solidarity with your group and to uh, pay attention to what you ate and how you behaved and all of that. So it was all sort of um, pre preservation, um, but it was very clear who you were. You were, you, were, you were a prisoner in a camp. There was no question about that. So then there's a whole other group who survived by pretending they weren't Jewish, okay? So what that meant was either you were hiding somewhere and some of these places that people hid, that Jews hid during the war were horrendous. You know, they hid in holes in the ground. They hid in freezing attics in, in barns. Um, and sometimes they hid for years. And so one of the characteristics of this group of people is that they're extremely secretive. They don't tell anybody about themselves. Um, these are some of the people who after the war emigrated and changed their names and didn't tell their kids they were Jewish because the, the habit of being secretive and hiding who you were had become so normal for them over six years. And then there's a third group of people who were fighters, who um, fought in the resistance, who lived in the forests or who um, joined the armies of the allies. You know, there were a whole bunch of Czech people who, who got out and went to England and uh, fought with the, with the British army. And there were a whole other group that went the other way that got out to the Soviet Union and fought with the Russian army. So you have these three very different reactions, responses to the Second World War for Jews. And each of these groups transmitted their survival strategies to their children. Wow, so, that's interesting. So basically the offspring have... Uh, to a certain extent, uh, developed personalities or maybe life characters based Correct. on Correct. one of the three Correct. groups, how their parents were surviving. Correct. 
Right. So I, for example, came across this because, so both of my parents were in the camps, right? Um, so they were total, totally identified as Jews, even though my mother wasn't even raised Jewish, she became totally identified as a Jew. So I was raised to be very upfront about being Jewish. And I was also raised to be super, super independent and to rely on myself and um, to, uh, to really be aware of who my friends were and help my friends, very networky, and also to develop skills that I could use if I were ever in a terrible situation. So I speak several languages and I'm quite, um, I'm just quite skilled. I can't sew and I can't, I can't do electrical work, but I'm pretty hmm. able to, to, to survive by myself. Um, I have friends who I met through my research who are children of some of these people who were, who were in hiding. And some of these people, you know, didn't want to be named in my book. <laughs> and I, I'd say, you know, why don't you want to be named? Oh, you know, my parents wouldn't like it. They, they felt that they were still living in secret, even though they were in a different hemisphere and um, in, a, in a new country. They were still very, very careful about who they told were Jews. And then the kids of the third group, the fighters, were very, very proud of um, their parents' war history and refused to acknowledge that there were any psychological problems or any trauma involved. They saw their parents as heroes and um, they pretty much um, discounted any damage that was done to uh, that generation during the war. Now, of course, we all know you can't come out of a war without damage on all sides, you know? Exactly. But, um, you know, that's, so, so that's an example of three different kinds of generational transmission. And my guess is that that would apply across the board to every group that survived genocide. I think there are the people who fought, the people who hid, and the people who were put in prison. I agree. I You made me think while we were saying that, and I can sort of, some flashes went through my head about, to a certain extent, maybe, you know, some of the family members or friends that I have that actually spent time in wars or even going back to some of my older relatives that were in World War II and went through maybe similar experiences, but I can definitely see and relate to these different groups to a certain extent. Uh, that's very interesting. I, I never knew there was uh, these sort of different patterns in, uh, in this kind of, I guess, human experience. Uh, right. And so are you, uh, 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 you spent basically, um, large portion of your career at New York Times or what did you do? Uh, well, I was a freelancer. Okay. I, I, was, I was a freelancer, which means that the reason I was a freelancer was I liked writing very long pieces. I knew that eventually I wanted to write books. So I didn't want to become a newspaper reporter because that meant 
you know, doing a new story every day or every two days and writing short pieces. I didn't want to do that. So what I did was I took a job teaching journalism. And for 12 okay. years, I was a professor of journalism at New York University. And because I got a salary, that allowed me to spend as much time as I wanted on my writing. And sometimes I would spend like three or four months on one magazine article because I could, you know, because I had I had the salary, so I could I could do that. And I really, I really enjoyed doing that. And soon I started writing books. So um, the second book in this in this historical trilogy is really um, a history of women in Central Europe, like, like the women in my family, working women, in, in, in my family's case, dressmakers, and what that history in Central Europe was like. And um, anyone who's interested in, in, the, in the history of Central Europe will find this of um, interest. It's, it's quite, it's quite serious history. It's not easy, but- And what's um, the name of this book? That book is called um, Where She Came From, A Daughter's Search for Her Mother's History. And that book, I'm happy to say, <laughs> was a big hit in, in the Czech Republic <laughs> because, oh, wow. because, because of communism, they really didn't, didn't have a lot of books about their own history. Because, you know, under communism, there were many things that you weren't allowed to say. And one of the many things that they weren't allowed to really look at was the modern history of Jews in, in the Czech lands. And since my family was Jewish and I was researching them primarily, um, that's what I wrote. And that book is being republished in its third edition at the end of this year in Czech which is amazing to me, but oh, you can get congratulations. it. Congratulations. Sorry? I said congratulations. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy about it because um, I, I just love the idea that an immigrant to the United States can write something um, about, about the history of another country and then they'll publish it. It's just amazing to me, but um, I'm really happy about that. And, that book is still, you can still get it on, uh, you know, in this country, it's an ebook, the where she came from. So, so that's the historical part of it. Now, the other thing is that um, writing children of the Holocaust really first made me aware of psychology. I never took a psychology course in college and I never was in psychotherapy until I started writing this book. And what Children of the Holocaust research gave me personally was an interest in psychology. And so the third book of this trilogy of Children of the Holocaust and where she came from is a book called The Long Half Lives of Love and Trauma. And that's really a book about, about how what I learned psychologically um, applies to me. It's the most wow, that's perfect. That's very interesting. Yeah. So then uh, how many books have you published so far? All in all, it's been 10 books, but some of them, I have two of them I translated 
and one okay. of them I edited. Um, one of them, it's it, I really love this book. Um, it's called Archivist on a Bicycle, and it's a collection of tributes from all kinds of people to this very unusual man named um, Fiedler, who all through the years of communism and Nazism just did his own thing. And one of the things he loved to do was he loved to bike around on his bicycle around Czechoslovakia, taking pictures of ruins, of ruined castles and ruined synagogues and untended cemeteries. And he would find out all about these buildings and all about um, these cemeteries. And he would take his own photographs and he would make rubbings of the tombstones. And then he would research all of these things. And he did this for something like 40 years. And unfortunately, um, about six years ago, he was murdered. He was murdered, which is very rare in, in the Czech Republic. There are very few murders. And he was murdered in his apartment by some young man who um, thought that he had money in his apartment. And so after I found out he was murdered, I decided to organize all these people who knew him to write this book. And, it's, and so, so this book is about my memories of him. He was one of the people who helped me in my research about my mother and grandmother and great-grandmother. And I would travel with him around the Czech lands, not by bicycle. We got a car and he, and he, would, he would drive around with me, but he was an incredible person. And um, that book is just about what it was like to be a person who just wanted to live his own life under communism and couldn't do it in, a, in, a, in, in an outward way. He had to do all this stuff secretly. And after communism fell in Czechoslovakia, all of the research he had amassed was given to museums. And so now all of his research is part of um, government funded you know, research. And um, most of his archives are in the Jewish Museum in Prague. And he himself wasn't Jewish. He was, he was Protestant. <laughs> so oh, I, yeah, it's an, it was a lot of fun to do that book. I mean, the thing is now that there's eBooks, it's so easy to put together a book. And um, that's one book I put together. And then I put together another very small book about my father and his Olympic stuff. You know, um, I have a lot of sports photographs that he left behind. He also died relatively young. He was 71 when he died. And um, I, I really am not very interested in sports, but he left a lot of stuff. <laughs> He left all these photographs of all of his Olympic teams and his water polo team and their photographs from his childhood. So um, I put together another little book that's on Amazon. It's called um, A Jewish Athlete. Interesting. And uh, I'm wondering, have you been to Czech Republic since? 
the basically fall of the Berlin Wall and the oh, Iron Oh, of course. Curtain. Yes, yes, yes. I go as often as I can. I like it very, very much. I think it's an amazingly beautiful city. Um, it's one of the few cities in, in Europe that really was not bombed. And um, as a result, it's got architecture that goes back pretty much to the Renaissance. And you can go on a street in Prague and there are buildings on one street that date from the 15th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. And it's like a course in architecture, you know. Um, it's also a small city. You can walk around it fairly easily. It's a beautiful city. It's got a river running through it and it's got a hill with a castle on top. And um, the biggest problem before COVID was that it was such a tourist magnet that in July and August, you know, you, you basically can't move in the center of the city. It's just packed with tourists. So if anybody who's listening to this wants to go to Prague, I suggest you go in the fall or in the spring, but not in the summer. Yes, Prague is definitely one of the top uh, tourist destinations in, in Europe. Um, have you um, seen like much transition? Basically, you spend a little bit of time, I believe, during the Soviet or during the communist era. And yeah. how does it compare, for example, uh, back from, I guess, 68 or that period to today? Right. Well, in 1968, the whole city was gray, completely gray. Okay. Everything was gray. The, you know, the, 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 the buildings were gray. The streets were gray. Everything was kind of stained with um, the pollution of horrible cars without gas emissions, you know, without, uh, what is that called? Um, you know, it was, it was unregulated emissions. Yep. So everything was kind of black and sooty and, and, and gray. And now it looks kind of like Disneyland. You know, everything is pastel colors, pink and turquoise and beige and, and, and salmon colored houses. And um, it's become very, very, very gentrified. You know, the whole center of the city has all these, you know, very fancy stores and it doesn't look very different from other major cities like in Italy or in, or in, or in Austria. I don't know what it's like now or the former Yugoslavia. I don't know whether that's happened to metropolitan centers there too. But, yeah, there um, was definitely a, a, a touch of uh, communism on the city art. Uh, well, most of the city architecture, most of the cities. So, yeah, I, I, I can I know exactly what are you talking about? Yeah. So it's it's changed a great deal. But if you go out into the countryside, you still feel that it's 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 not internationalized yet. It still feels very different from from other places, but, um, and also in the cities, everybody now speaks English. English has become a very common language. Whereas of course, before 1989, nobody spoke English and everybody learned Russian in school. Was that the case for you too? 
Uh, so for us, it was slightly different because uh, at sort of early stages of communism in Yugoslavia, like after World War II, Tito, the leader of the Communist Party and then the sort of authoritarian president until he died like in 1980, he split away from Soviet Union. So we were sort of a blend between the East and West or Eastern and Western Europe, I should say. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was in um, in Soviet Union in 1988 as a kid, and one of my neighbors from Sarajevo, where I was uh, living at the time in, in Yugoslavia, uh, his dad was a, a foreign correspondent for a local newspaper. He was stationed, or he was like a station chief in, in Moscow, so... So I went, spent, I don't know, like a winter break in, in Moscow back in 1988 to visit my friend. And he was showing me his book about, I can't remember, it was geography or history or something like that. But they basically in Soviet Union had Yugoslavia labeled as a capitalist country. So, oh, <laughs> so wow. I guess we weren't necessarily part of that whole, uh, we didn't have it as bad, what I'm trying to say, as, as like Czechoslovakia, Poland, Eastern Germany, et cetera, had it. Right. Uh, yeah so we had the communism but wasn't that hardcore stuff that happened in in other parts of eastern europe yeah so when when you look at what happened um in your parents country how do you identify now when you meet americans and they ask you oh you know you have you have a slight accent where are you from what do you say (laughs) yeah well, I, I'm probably not going to be like the best sample uh, out of that population because uh, we left, uh, the war started in Yugoslavia in 91, but even prior to that, back in like 1984, we moved to Iraq, Baghdad, where I actually learned English. So I spent probably my first memory comes from Baghdad and then, you know, spent a few years there went back to Yugoslavia and then like shortly afterward war started. So then we had to you know, leave again. Uh, but I, I think one, um, so we didn't really luckily spent as much time in the war itself as a lot of other people did, you know, it was a fairly brutal war. Uh, but I think like what was interesting to me when I was reading your, uh, especially your, your mom's book was, uh, you know, <laughs> there's so much like psychology now, not only on the, obviously on the Jewish and other survivors from other ethnic groups side, but then also Germans, because uh, I imagine a number of them, you know, didn't really have an option, but, you know, to live under the Nazi regime. Uh, But then at at the same time, you know, probably uh, I was wondering, like, is there any kind of guilt not necessarily i wouldn't i shouldn't say guilt i guess to kind of throw back that question to you like when you going through these experiences and interviewing all these people like what was the general feeling with the children of survivors to, towards in general germany or germans was there any kind of transmission of that kind of blame or hate or anything like that well in my family we, in my family, we were taught that um, you could not hate all Germans anyway. I mean, even the generation of the Nazis 
there were people, the Nazis, there were people who, who, Germans, who died at the hands of the Nazis. There were people who helped Jews. So my parents were absolutely against blanket blame of that generation of Germans. As far as their children went, they thought you cannot blame the children of the Germans for anything because they weren't alive. It wasn't their guilt. It's, it's, it's the guilt of the Nazis specifically. Now, how many people teach their children that? I don't know. <laughs> I know my parents yep. were not alone in teaching us that, but I don't know how many um, people like me whose families were murdered by the Germans um, were taught not to blame Germans as a group. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I know that the Germans that I have met <laughs> who are my age have tremendously complicated feelings uh, about uh, Jews and um, about their guilt about Jews. And when I, I've been to Germany uh, twice uh, in, in, in conjunction with my books because my books have been translated into German. And so I, I would go speak about them there. And I can tell you, I just feel very um, uncomfortable in Germany because I am constantly being um, looked at and talked to as a Jew. You know, I'm used okay. to being an American. I'm used to not having to think about this all the time. And when I'm there, yep. um, I'm constantly having to deal with it in a weird way. It's kind of like, you know, I have, I have African-American friends who tell me that that's the way they feel in the United States a lot of the time, that they're constantly having to deal with race. Well, when I'm in, yep. when I'm in, when I'm in Germany, I constantly have to deal with being Jewish. I mean, every question that's addressed to me is, has something to do with the fact that I'm Jewish. And I wanna say, hey, you know, give it a rest. You know, I'm, I'm just, yep. I'm just a human being. I'm not here as a Jew. I'm here as a writer who's, who's written some books. And I'm also here as a tourist who wants to have a good time. I don't want to have this conversation all the time. No, exactly. I, I can relate to that because we, uh, not as much in the United States, but for example, in we kind of in Bosnia basically had like a three-way ethnic war between the really Croatian Serbians and Bosnian Muslims. And uh, depending on the part of the world, but you know, it was, it's well-known fact in, in Europe and then also in Middle East due to their support towards the Bosnian Muslims. So that's the first thing that people mentioned when I talked to them, even though I was there very short period of time of the war and my life in general. <laughs> but yeah, that's, I can totally relate to your, uh, your, your position when you were in Germany. Right. Right. So, yeah. So, that, so, so that's that. But, um, it must be terribly difficult to be a child of Nazis. I mean, you know, you're born, it's not your fault. You didn't choose your parents. Exactly. And it's a terrible burden to live with. Yeah, yeah, I can only imagine, but I, um, it's a tragedy, tragedy all around. Uh, well, Helen, thank you very much for the time. This was an amazing conversation. I learned a lot 
not only today, but also going through uh, your mother's book and now going through your book. Uh, there's a lot of parts of history, European history, like human history that I, and psychology that I, you know, got to learn uh, through, through these experiences with the books and talking to you directly. And uh, I'm going to uh, post links to your books to into the description of this podcast. So basically, this is going to be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Audible, and actually also Podbean. And then all the listeners can find your books on Amazon. If, or if you listen on, to audiobooks, you can also find it on Audible. And Great. thanks again. It, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Brooke. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye.